the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Dallas Theological Seminary, which I love, they are probably the most well-known dispensational, pre-tribulational, premillennial seminary in the world. And so when I began to study this, it seemed to indicate to me that this sharp distinction between Israel and the church wasn't supported by that passage. In a culture as politically polarized and aggressively tribalized as ours, how do people change their minds? I'm Georgie Borman, a mother, author, and cultural commentator. I want to know what we can learn from people who've been on both sides of contentious issues, whether they end up on the right or the left. That's what this podcast is about. Welcome to the 180 Cast. That there will be a rebuilt temple in modern-day Jerusalem, and they say that this was promised or prophesied in the Old Testament. I think that's an abomination. Jesus is the literal fulfillment of the Old Testament temple. Hi, welcome back to the 180 cast. I'm your host, Georgie Borman. This is the podcast where we discover how people change their minds. I am so stoked to be launching into the realm of Christian theology and doctrine today. And of course, I love doing all of the other political topics that I usually cover on the podcast um, but the, the truth is, is that as far as learning is concerned and where you put your resources and your intellectual energy, there's really, really no subject more worth your time than learning about God and learning about his truth. So eschatology or the, uh, the study of the last times, the final destiny of mankind, judgment and all of that, that is one of the most fascinating areas of biblical study, and a lot of people who um, are into studying the Bible period will tell you that that is one of the most fascinating things. It's also one of the most controversial, um, which means that other Christians are likely to avoid studying it or talking about it almost completely. And then there are others that tend toward almost the obsessive side where they, you know, see signs of the end times in every single major world event. Growing up, for me personally, I was only familiar with one view of the end times. And as far as I knew, that was the only view. It just leapt, leapt off the pages of the book of Revelation, right? I didn't question it. I never took the time to really study it either. Um, although I thought it was kind of interesting. There was just other things I was studying. And it wasn't until I was an adult... Um, you know, painting cabinets on my garage floor where I had copious amounts of time to listen to podcasts that I discovered that the uh, the pre-tribulational, pre-millennial framework was not, in fact, the only way to interpret the relevant text of scripture. This was a revelation to me. Now, these are very interesting times we are living in, and there will be people who will warn you emphatically that we are approaching uh, a great tribulation. We've got wars. We've got a plague. We've got pestilence as Africa battles mega swarms of locusts. We've got earthquakes. I mean, there was one in Idaho that was 
pretty sizable just a couple weeks ago. And given the tendency Christians can sometimes have to read the Bible into everything they see in the news or everything they experience instead of the other way around, I do think that it is a great time to look at a 180 on the millennium, the the thousand year reign of Christ's kingdom on earth, the literal uh, interpretation of which is central to the, the pre-millennial dispensational view of the end times that I grew up. So my next guest holds a PhD from the University of Texas and Master in Theology from Dallas Theological Seminary. He is a lead pastor um, preaching. Uh, he's a lead pastor for preaching and vision at Bridgeway Church in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, and founder of Enjoying God Ministries and serves on the boards of Bethlehem College and Seminary and Acts 29 Network. If I have all my information up to date, he has authored numerous books, including Kingdom Come, The Amillennial Alternative, and Practicing the Power, Welcoming the Gifts of the Holy Spirit in Your Life. Sam Storms, thank you so much for joining me on the 180 cast today. Georgie, it's good to be with you. I've been looking forward to this. Me too. Very much so. Okay, so Sam, can you, starting off, can you remind the listener who maybe is like a little bit rusty on the subject about what are the main things that distinguish the three sort of main schools of thought on the end times? Because we've got the pre-millennialists, we've got the amillennialists, and we've, we've got the, the post-millennialists which are more akin to the all-millennialists. Um, yes. So, yeah. yeah. I'd, be, I'd be happy to do that because um, it can get confusing to people. And it helps uh, to, uh, to focus on kind of the uh, prefix to each of those words. So the pre-millennialist believes that Jesus Christ will return at, in his second coming before what they believe is a 1,000-year literal rule of Christ upon the earth. The post-millennialist believes that Christ will return after millennium. Um, so the post-millennialist does not believe that uh, the millennium of Revelation 20 is describing a literal 1,000-year reign, reign of Christ on the earth. Most post-millennialists believe that it is the millennium is the ever-expansive kingdom of Christ through the church in the present age. So it's a it's more of a spiritual uh, growth of the uh, reign and the influence of the lordship of Jesus throughout the course of the present age, which will be consummated by the return of Christ. The amillennialist um, is closer to the postmillennial view. I, I don't like the alpha privative, the little A in front of mm -hmm. in front of the label that I believe because it sounds like that means I don't believe in the millennium. Mm -hmm. But of course I do. I mean, all Christians who believe the Bible believe in. Revelation 20. It's just what is the millennium? And I personally believe as an amillennialist that the millennium has been ongoing since the time of the exaltation of Christ to the right hand of the Father back in the first century and will conclude at the time of Christ's second coming. And it refers primarily to what is happening in heaven right now in what we call the intermediate state. In other words, uh, just to give you a, a quick illustration. Let's take let's take Augustine and Jonathan Edwards and my dad, who died in 1983, all three Christian men who died and entered into the intermediate state. They are present with Christ in their disembodied condition, and they are sharing 
and participating in the reign of, of Jesus over the whole of the universe. So the millennium is happening now in heaven as those who have died in Christ are reigning with Christ. Um, and in what capacity, we don't precisely know. The Bible doesn't exactly explain it. It just says that we are raised up with him and that we, in fact, reign with him. So those are the three views. I think the perhaps the, the, the most helpful way to, to keep these distinct is to remember that the premillennialist alone believes that there will be a literal 1,000 years uh, rule of Christ on this earth after the second coming. Neither the postmillennialist nor the amillennialist would believe that. So that's kind of the, the primary distinguishing feature among the millennial views. So for you personally, when you were growing up um, and forming your initial premillennial views on the subject, what were you being taught? What were the conversations like um, that sort of like led you to mm. form that position in the first place? Well, quite honestly, uh, <laughs> um, just like you mentioned in your introductory comments, I didn't know there was another view. I mean, I was raised Southern Baptist, and I'm very grateful for that heritage and that influence. But we we were never uh, informed or taught that there were differing views of how to uh, interpret the book of Revelation and other biblical texts. So we just, by default, assumed that the uh, what's called the dispensational, pre-tribulational, pre-millennial view of the end times was true. Um, so that was that was just something I don't know that, uh, you know, if, if people can remember back this far, Hal Lindsey's book, The Late Great Planet Earth, which is one of the, the best-selling books in the history of publishing, I think it's like 30 or 35 million copies of that thing have sold. That articulated the view that was just by default, the only view that Bible-believing Christians could embrace. And any other view would was was kind of an indication that you really didn't believe the Bible, you didn't take it as, as truthful, uh, and you were just trying to kind of weasel your way around what it very clearly said. And it wasn't until I got to theological seminary and I began to be exposed to really godly, Bible-believing, evangelical Christians who took a different perspective and they opened my eyes to asking some questions and to looking at certain texts that eventually led to me shifting to the amillennial view. Okay, so how did that happen? Do you remember, you know, who approached you specifically? Was it like a professor or one of your classmates? Or did they pass you a note in class or <laughs> invite oh, you yeah. to an underground meeting? What what happened? Well, it's, yeah, I remember it vividly. Uh it's important for people to understand Dallas Theological Seminary, which I love. I love the professors there. I cherish the education I got there. They are probably the most well-known dispensational, pre-tribulational, pre-millennial seminary in the world. And uh, eschatology was constantly being debated. We were, I mean, everywhere we went, in the lunchroom, in the library, in the classroom, that's the issue we debated. And what happened with me is in my second year at Dallas, uh, I was in a class on the uh, the Greek exegesis of the book of Ephesians. And I just, I just have to say it was providential that I was assigned Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. And so when I began to study this, it, it seemed to indicate to me that this sharp distinction between Israel and the church 
wasn't supported by that passage that Paul talked about uh, Gentiles now being made through Christ uh, citizens of the commonwealth of Israel and co-heirs of the promises that had been given to the fathers in the Old Testament. So that was the first kind of the chink in the armor. It, It awakened me to the fact that this distinction between Israel and the church may not be supported by scripture. And then um, over the course of time, um, I began. Re- I read uh, Robert Gundry's book, The Church and Tribulation, George Ladd's book, The Blessed Hope, and um, a number of other books, and became convinced that the pre-tribulation rapture probably wasn't true. Now, that might shock a lot of people. I remember when I first came out at the church where I was serving as a pastor and told them that I now embraced a post-tribulation rapture, you would have thought I denied the resurrection. I mean, that's how deeply cherished that particular view is. And I'm not, I'm not trying to ridicule or be critical mm-hmm. of people who embrace it at all. Yeah. Uh, some of my very best friends hold to that view, but it is, so, um, it is so important to many, many believers that for you to suggest that the church will go through a, a season of great persecution and tribulation and that Christ will only return for his people at the end of that time that's a threat to many people. And so when I, I, I first kind of uh, walked away from dispensationalism, then I embraced uh, a view of the rapture or the second coming uh, that was post-tribulational after what I believed the tribulation to be. I was still left with, the, uh, with, with being premillennial, but um, again, through extensive study, reading books like uh, Anthony Hokema's book, the, the Bible in the Future and others, Studying the book of Revelation for myself, I came to the conclusion that um, the premillennial view just didn't hold up. And I I can very briefly share why I can still remember. I said, all right, I'm going to sit down. I'm going to read through the New Testament, and I'm going to take note of every verse that talks about the second coming of Jesus and what happens. And what I discovered was, is that at the second coming of Jesus, all physical death terminates. It ends. Death is swallowed up in victory. I kept reading, and I saw, for example, in Romans 8, that the natural creation uh, will be delivered or set free from the curse that had been imposed following the sin of Adam. And I kept reading, and I saw, for example, in Second Peter 3, that at the second coming, the new heavens and the new earth are inaugurated. Um, I also kept seeing in multiple places that once Christ has returned at the end of history, all opportunity for salvation ends, that this is the day of salvation, um, and that when Christ returns, um, there is no hope for uh, conversion. Um, I kept looking, and... I noticed that at the second coming, the final resurrection occurs, both for believers and non-believers. I also saw that at the second coming, um, all unbelievers are cast into uh, the lake of fire. And, you know, a lot of people are probably listening to this. and They're saying, well, okay, what's the big deal, Sam? <laughs> well, here's the big deal. Um, if you are premillennial, you can't believe any of those things I just mentioned. Because the premillennialist says that there will continue to be physical death after the second coming of Jesus in this alleged millennium. The premillennialist says that 
after the second coming, the natural creation is still subject to the curse because they've got who knows how many millions of unbelievers on earth during this millennial reign. Um, you'd have to, you have to insert 1000 years in between the second coming and the new heavens, and the new earth, which it doesn't seem to me the new Testament allows. Uh, you have to allow for the possibility that people can continue to come to faith in Christ during the millennium. You have to believe that the uh, resurrection of the unbeliever is separated by 1000 years from the second coming of Christ. You have to believe that unbelievers won't be cast into the lake of fire until 1000 years after the second coming of Christ. Now, I know that's a lot of information, but I kept bumping up against these descriptions of what happens when Jesus comes back. And every one of them precludes the possibility that there would be a literal 1000 year continuation of human history on the earth prior to the new heavens and the new earth. And that's really what pushed me over the edge. (laughs) That's what accounted for my shift um, in thinking about the nature of what the millennium is in Revelation 20. Not not to be snarky or anything, but I was, I was almost going to be like, oh, reading the Bible yourself changed your mind about something? Oh, my <clears> goodness. <throat> hey, there, Georgie, there's a very important lesson there. And let me be the first to make a confession. I discovered that I held my professors in such high, high regard, and rightly so, good and godly men who love the Bible, that I oftentimes simply accepted what they told me And to my everlasting shame, I failed to open up the Bible and read it for myself to see if that was really true. And, you know, I've I've had to say to people, you know, the bottom line is um, when somebody says something, no matter who it is, no matter how how highly regarded they are, ask yourself the question, where is that in the Bible? And when I began to do that, rather than just taking on their authority, what they said is true. Um, boy, my eyes started to open up, and that's uh, really largely what accounts for my shift in eschatology. So it started for you, the the journey sort of started for you realizing that pre-tribulational rapture was not something you thought held up. Right. And and I think I've, I've heard this with other people where that's kind of where they start because the rapture is something that is a... A, a focal point, right? In in like all of the premillennial doctrines, that's something that people focus on a lot. Um, and then when they abandon that position of premillennial rapture, that kind of like seems to take them on some sort of journey to eventually becoming either amillennial or or postmillennial. Do you think that is there a reason behind that, or is it just more people who take the initiative? to examine, like you said, to examine the the passages for themselves are the people who are more likely to also go and read Revelation and, and not find where the thousand years fits in. Yeah, it's a combination of those things. Now, let's be clear about one thing. I don't want our listeners to be misled. I believe in the rapture. Uh, if you believe in the Bible, you have to believe in the rapture. First Thessalonians 4 very clearly and explicitly describes it. First Corinthians 15 describes it. I just believe that the rapture and the second coming are the same event. I believe they are simultaneous. I don't believe they are separated by a seven-year period of tribulation. Mm-hmm. So 
I want to be real clear when, you know, people say, oh, do you don't believe in the rapture? And I say, of course I do. I just don't believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. I believe in a post-tribulation rapture in conjunction with the second coming. Um, now, you, you ask, does this kind of, uh, once you've embraced that view, does it kind of set you the snowball rolling down the mountainside and it kind of picks up steam and becomes eventually millennialism when you reach the bottom? Um, in a sense that that is true because um, the pre-tribulation rapture and premillennialism are very much tied up with a rigid distinction between Israel and the church, that this idea that God has two separate covenant peoples who have two separate inheritances, um, and although they may share and over certain spiritual blessings, um, you know, God's rule upon the earth is primarily designed for Old Testament Israel uh, in the latter days, and the church is somehow uh, not a, a co-heir of that promise. So I think what happens is once you begin looking at the basis for a pre-tribulation rapture and a premillennial uh, kingdom, you begin to see that the lines of distinction between Israel and the church are blurred. So again, let me be real clear. So I don't want to, to mislead people. Um, I do not believe in what's called replacement theology. Yeah, I was going to believe- ask you about that. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. No, I don't believe that the church has replaced Israel and may and, and here's the analogy that I use. I hope it's helpful. Um, I would ask people, do you believe that the butterfly replaces the caterpillar? And everybody thinks for a moment, they say, Well, no, the butterfly is simply the consummate development, the organic product of what the caterpillar is. That's the relationship between Israel and the church. The early church was almost entirely Jewish. The early church in the upper room and that we read about in the book of Acts, at least up until Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 10, was comprised of Jewish believers in Jesus. And uh, they were the believing remnant out of Old Testament Israel, and that became the nucleus of the emerging church that now includes believing Gentiles. So um, the church can't replace Israel because the church is itself the the true continuation and the maturing of Israel. There's only one olive tree, Romans 11. But in that one olive tree, in that one covenant people of God, there are natural branches. Those are believing Jews. There are unnatural branches. Those are believing Gentiles. I'm an unnatural branch. I've been grafted into that olive tree. I'll always be a Gentile. Um, my Jewish friends will always be Jews. But we together are one people with one covenant promise, with one inheritance, with one destiny that we all share equally. So uh, replacement theology has is this notion that somehow believing Jews are displaced and forfeit their covenant promises that are then somehow taken over by believing Gentiles. And I don't believe that at all. So again, just keep the analogy in mind. Um, the church is the kind of what we the, the covenant people of God today are like the butterfly in relationship to the caterpillar. Um, and again, I don't know if that helps some or if it confuses mm-hmm. others, but it's always been helpful to me. So what do you say to the, the objection that all millennialists or all, all mil- millenarians as a uh, Kim, R- Kim Riddlebarger says um, that, that, that you're, you're spiritualizing Israel 
and that there are all of these literal promises to Israel that have to be fulfilled. And so literal national Israel has to have some role going forward in the end times because there are like literal promises, like land promises sure. that are, are, are given to Israel. So people would say, you're, you're spiritualizing that and you can't do that because there are literal promises to Israel that have to be kept. Sure. Great question. Glad you raised it. L- let me address a couple of examples of that. Um, for example, there are many dispensationalists, premillists who believe that there will be a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, in modern day Jerusalem, right where the Dome of the Rock now stands. And they say that this was promised or prophesied in the Old Testament. I just think that's, this is going to offend people, okay? I think that's an abomination. Jesus is the literal fulfillment of the Old Testament temple. He is the embodiment of the glory of God. And then we, the body of Christ, the church, by extension, are the temple of God. We read this all through the New Testament, especially, for example, in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Corinthians 6, Ephesians 2, 2 Corinthians 6, um, 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, the only temple, the only dwelling place that God will ever be pleased to dwell is in his people, believers, the church, the body of Christ. So when you say, Sam, you're spiritualizing the Old Testament promise, I'm saying, I'm only doing what the New Testament does. It's the New Testament, the inspired text of the Bible that tells me that Jesus is the true temple and we being his body are by extension that temple. To to say that there's going to be a rebuilt temple, that God will sanction this somewhere uh, in in modern day Jerusalem is basically to, to deny that Jesus ever came. It's to deny that he was in fact, um, the, the presence of the glory of God on this earth. It's to deny that the church uh, as his body is that temple. Uh, it's, it's the worst form of what I call redemptive retrogression. It's going backwards. And I, if people say, well, why do you believe that? I say, read the book of Hebrews. Everything in the Old Testament was, was pointing to Jesus. Um, he provides a better covenant, a better sacrifice, um, better promises, a better priesthood, a better temple. Uh, he is the he is the literal fulfillment of these many promises. Now, the second example you mentioned the land. Well, I do believe that will be literally fulfilled on literal soil and grass and earth. I just think it'll be on the new earth, not some millennial one thousand year earth that is still subject to the curse. So, the promises that God will reign with His people on the earth. I think will be literally and physically fulfilled, but it'll be in the new earth that is described in Revelation 21 and 22. So each of these promises has to be examined uh, in the light of what the New Testament says. We, we can't read the Old Testament as if the New Testament and Jesus had never come. The, the definitive interpretation of the Old Testament and how its promises are fulfilled is itself the New Testament. Now, again, that raises all sorts of other questions, but I'll just stop there and let you let you respond to that. Yeah. So so you're saying like um, the temple and and all the the sacrifices that were meant to atone for the the sins of the people of Israel, like those are types and shadows of what Christ would eventually 
accomplish on the cross. And so if we go back to the sacrifices, what does that say about Christ's atonement on the cross? Well, it would be like it never happened. Exactly. Precisely. Yeah, we have to take a Christocentric view of all of Scripture. Jesus is the key, and we have to um, understand, you know, there's a a book that was written several years ago called Reading Backwards by Richard Hayes, and it's a superb um, treatment of this very issue. In other words, we read backwards into the Old Testament in light of what has happened in the New, Mm -hmm. Um, and we understand those prophecies in light of uh, the kingdom of God that has come in the person of Christ. So, yes. What what would you say to the objection, which uh, I've heard before, that yes, there are going to be sacrifices, but everybody knows that they're just like symbolic, right? People don't actually put their faith in that to atone for their sins. It's just purely symbolic. And, and if you, and, and, you know, this idea that you, you need to interpret the Bible literally. And it, and when it says dot, 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 then you need to interpret that, you know, at face value as dot, dot, dot. Well, there are a couple of, yeah, you raised a couple of questions there. Let me address the, the latter one first and then bring me back to your first one. Um, we have to define what we mean by the word literal. Because if somebody asked me the question, do you believe everything in the Bible is literally true? And I say, well, of course not. Nobody believes that. We believe everything in the Bible is true, but not necessarily literally true. I, Jesus is not a door. You know, um, the mountains don't literally clap their hands. We have just thousands of figures of speech and symbols and types and antitypes throughout the scriptures. So I wish we could drop the word literal and simply use the word true. Um, And then we ask the question, what was the author's intent in making certain statements? Uh, how, How is the figurative or metaphorical language to be interpreted? What truth is it trying to communicate to us? Now, circle back around. Um, if you are, if you hold to a very, I'm going to use the word here, woodenly literal interpretation of the Old Testament, for example, you have to believe that in this millennial kingdom um, that people believe is being described in Ezekiel 40 through 48, that there will be sacrifices offered up that the Old Testament, that passage in Ezekiel says, will be propitiatory. In other words, they will actually atone for the sins of God's people. And I would just simply say, are you kidding me? Has not Jesus himself fully and finally atoned for our sins? Is he not the propitiation that uh, satisfies the wrath of God that we deserved? The idea that somehow um, we're going to take a literal lamb and put it on an altar and cut its throat and spill its blood uh, in some future millennial kingdom, to me, it, again, I know it's going to be offensive to people. I just think that's blasphemous because it it basically is saying Jesus Christ, who is the true Lamb of God, never came. And even though he died on a cross for us, well, that really wasn't the consummate expression of God's love in providing a sacrifice for sin. We got we to gotta slaughter a goat or a lamb, spread its blood on the altar. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the, the, think about this. The the consummate memorial of what Christ did is the Lord's Supper that we observe in our churches today. 
Um, that's the only ongoing quote-unquote sacrifice, and I don't mean that in a Roman Catholic sense, mm-hmm. but a memorial of the only true final sacrifice. But the idea that somehow the Old Testament Levitical sacrifices are going to be reinstituted in this millennial kingdom, I just think is borderline heresy. And I say that, I hope with a measure of humility, because many of my very close friends believe it, and I know they're not heretics. I just wish that they would open their eyes and think about what they are saying and what that suggests about the personal work of Jesus. Again, all I can say to people is, please read the book of Hebrews. Uh, The book of Hebrews is, I think, the definitive um, uh, New Testament book, along with Revelation, on uh, that, that that upholds the view that I'm articulating. Uh, now, I think again, I think you can be premillennial and still fully believe in the Book of Hebrews. But this idea that somehow Levitical sacrifices are going to be reinstituted in the kingdom after Christ comes, I, 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 I I'm almost speechless at, at that kind of idea that just that just um, terrorized so where, terrified so where me. Does, where, where where exactly does this? idea come from in fact where does this the uh the pre-millennial view start like how far how far back does it go because it's it's obviously the dominant view in american evangelicalism um and uh i know that like the the schofield bible has had a big influence on people and its footnotes and stuff but where does this where did this even get started and where did this idea that these the, the temple and the sacrifices have to be literal come from um yeah that's a good question i think you know when you when you look at uh, the history of the church it really was although there are exceptions here and there it wasn't until the middle of the 19th century that people began to read uh, these old testament prophecies in that kind of woodenly physical literal way and insist that they're uh, that they had to be reproduced uh, precisely in this millennial kingdom. Here, here's the way I put it. Um, I ask people, do you believe that the Old Testament prophecies are kind of like a photograph that has to be literally reproduced in precisely the same way in their fulfillment after the coming of Christ? And, and many dispensational premillennialists say, yes, that was not a prevalent view in the history of the church until the 19th century when dispensationalism began to emerge. And it really took root at the beginning of the 20th century uh, in the fundamentalist modernist controversy. Now, some of your readers may not know what I'm talking about, but there was a considerable um, controversy really for about the first 35 or 40 years of the 20th century. Uh, Modernist liberals began to deny the miracles of of Jesus, began to deny the inerrancy of Scripture, began to question whether he was truly God incarnate. Uh, All of these foundational truths of the Christian faith began to just kind of dissipate. And there rose up in defense of the fundamentals of the faith, people that were then called fundamentalists. And they said, no, we, we believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. The, the, the virgin birth really happened. Jesus is truly God. He, he truly died as a substitution for us. He literally rose from the dead, and he will come back. And part and parcel of that uh, approach to the so-called fundamentals of the faith was this idea that if we really believe the Bible, if we're going to take it seriously 
and affirm that it is inspired of God, then to use the language you used earlier, we have to believe that everything in it is literally true. And if, and if you don't believe that, if you, if you say, well, some things are true, but they're expressed in figurative and metaphorical and symbolic ways, that was viewed as, whoa, you're just sliding into liberalism. You're on the path to, uh, to joining the modernist camp. And so it became very much a part of the fabric, if I can use this language, of the mm-hmm. fabric of the culture of American fundamentalism to read the Bible in this woodenly literal way. And any suggestion otherwise was viewed as, well, you're drifting away from the faith. You, you, you just won't let the Bible say what it says. You're trying to, to reinterpret it in a way that you know, is compatible with modern science or modern culture. I think that's there's a whole history of that that is um, I address a little bit of that in my book Kingdom Come. I talk about the emergence of dispensationalism in this regard. So it's again, it's a big complex answer to a very complex question that you ask. So I, all I can do is blame you, Georgie. You ask, <laughs> you ask the question and you force me to give my answer. <laughs> I'm always uh, I'm always uh, trying to trying to throw throw the curveballs every once in a while. Keep things interesting. No, that was a really good answer. So, but what is the the role of national Israel in the end times then, if there is any? Like, are American evangelicals and premillennialists across the world wrong to, like, watch the news about national Israel so closely? Like, will, um, yeah. like, will they have some sort of role how does that figure into things right because you're saying there's no replacement theology but you know we're we're grafted into um the the believing remnant we're grafted into israel but then so what what are you left with because we have this nation of israel now and we have since like what 1940 right like the the state yes um so what do we do with that boy that's a big question um let me let me give you kind of the, the two options um, and, and I, and I say this with a measure of hesitancy because although I do embrace one of these two options, I am more than willing to be persuaded I'm wrong and be brought into the other. The two options are this <clears throat> one is that there will be a move of the Holy spirit just prior to the second coming of Jesus that will take place among the Jewish people of the earth and they will be brought together in saving faith in Jesus Christ. And in effect, God will uh, reconstitute his Old Old Testament covenant people, Israel, in the land, the literal land that exists over there right now. Uh, And they will inherit um, all of these promises of of, of Christ's rule with them in the land. He will restore their their glory. He will renew all the blessings that they once experienced. Um, that is one view. In other words, there's going to be a national, um, gosh, what do I say this revitalization or, a mm-hmm. or a restoration of the theocratic state of Israel that is in right relationship to Jesus. Now I have some, some of my very best friends embrace that view. And I, you know, I, I'm open to being persuaded of it. The problem I have is I just don't think the new Testament will allow me to believe that God favors any 
national entity today other than the church of Jesus Christ. We are, as First Peter 2 says, the holy nation um, that God blesses. Uh, the other view <clears throat> is that, yes, there uh, very likely uh, could be or maybe will be a mighty move of the Spirit to bring Jewish people to saving faith in Jesus. And when he does, they will be incorporated into the church. They will become members of the body of Christ, just like believing Gentiles, and that the two together will inherit the promises, not in an earthly millennium, but on the new earth of Revelation 21 and 22. So the idea that there, that there uh, could be a, a revival, a saving revival among ethnic Jews, bringing them to faith in Jesus is widely held. It's embraced by both camps. Uh, but whether there is also, together with that, a reestablishment of the theocratic nation of Israel as we know it in the Old Testament, that's where the dividing line is. That's where uh, many would say yes. Uh, those of us who are amillennial would uh, say no. We, we're more than happy to acknowledge that God may well move among the Jews and bring them to faith in Jesus. But if he does, They'll be incorporated into the body of Christ. They will be in Christ on an equal standing with believing Gentiles. Nobody has any greater uh, blessing or inheritance than anyone else. As long as we're in Christ, we have everything. So what do you think, zooming out a little bit, what do you think is the, the biggest objection or a couple of the biggest objections that somebody, a premillennialist, would have to overcome to start rolling toward the the amillennial perspective, do you think it's um, do you think it you know for instance like what we just talked about the the nation of Israel or or is it something else like the literal paradigm or what? Oh, yeah, um, I I think probably my sense is that the the biggest hurdle for them or that that they need to be able to jump over is to see the way in which Jesus is himself the fulfillment uh, preeminently of the Old Testament promises. And that if we are in Christ by faith, we are the seed of Abraham, Galatians chapter 3, and we are therefore heirs of the covenant promises. Um, I, I think that is probably the key. Um, I, I'm sure there are others. I, I, you mentioned the literal paradigm. Yes, that that also. Uh, I think they have to overcome the fear that if they um, if they don't interpret everything in this woodenly literal way, that somehow they're denying the authority of Scripture, or they're going to undermine the faith of people, and it's just a slippery slope down the road or down the hillside into liberalism. That fear is really rampant among many Christians. They're scared to death of it if they they hear. The, the language of figurative or metaphorical or symbolic, and they think that means, oh, you've just emptied the Bible of its, of its truth. And I'm saying, no, no, no. We have to look at the way the Bible communicates to us and say what is symbolized is real. I mean, there's a real truth in, in symbols. What is it? There's real truth in types and in figurative expressions. It may not be you know, physically tangible, as in, for example, the temple issue. 
They say, well, you're, you're vacating, you're spiritualizing, you're vaporizing the, the physicality of the promise of the temple. And I say, no, 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 it's real. It's just that it's the church. It's Jesus and by extension, his body. And that's very real. That's a very real temple, as Paul says repeatedly in his letters. So those are some of the factors I think that that my premillennial friends need to wrestle with. And I'm sure they've got a lot that they think I need to wrestle with. Um, and I have, because I, I was a dispensational, pre-tribulational, premillennialist for the first 30 years of my life. Um, and so I, I've read most of the books, if not all of them, and I understand that view, and I, I just can't embrace it any longer. How consequential is the amillennial, premillennial issue exactly? Like, some people choose to not really even study the subject because it means they're going to wade into controversial waters and that that's just something that's just going to work itself out in the end. Um, but how, how much does this matter really? And what are, what are premillennialists missing out on by yeah. not being a millennial? Well, yeah, that's a good question. How consequential and, in one sense, I would say not very, and in another sense, considerable. <laughs> so let me explain both. Not very in this sense. What is consequential is the return of Jesus. Um, the reason why I fellowship side by side and minister with my dispensational pre-trib, pre-mill brothers and sisters is because they affirm, as I do, the literal, personal, visible, bodily, physical return of Jesus Christ at the end of history. That's the key issue. That's what we need to unite around. And to deny that is to put yourself outside of the pale of orthodoxy. It's the coming of Christ that we share in common. Um, that's the most consequential issue in eschatology. All of the other details that you and I have just been discussing for the past hour are inconsequential in comparison with that. Now, on the other hand, they are consequential in another sense. <clears throat> For example, I, I sense my as I hear them, as I read their books, I talk to them, it feels to me, it, it seems to me that they are missing out on the, the glory and the majesty of who Jesus really is and what he came to accomplish that he himself was the true Israel and his, his body, the church by extension is the true Israel and how that affects our understanding of his life and ministry and of his atoning death, his bodily resurrection and the work he's doing in the building of his church in this present age. Anything that would diminish that by somehow projecting that um, or by separating that from, uh, you know, that well. Well, maybe that doesn't make sense. How, what am I trying to say? Anything that would diminish that by suggesting that, no, what Sam, you see happening in Jesus won't happen until the millennium, and then it's going to happen in some woodenly literal way, to me diminishes the glory and the majesty of Jesus and the consummate work of God the Father in and through his Son. To me, that is consequential. Um, so I don't know if that really answers the question, yeah. but... No, absolutely. So wrapping up here, what what is your, let's say you're you're taking an elevator ride, six feet apart, of course, <laughs> with a, a premillennialist. Yeah. And uh, 
you you talk for a minute and um, what's what's sort of your your elevator pitch for for getting that person thinking about things in a way that might push them toward the amillennial perspective what what do you bring up in that circumstance I would say the first and second comings of Jesus Christ, the first coming. Jesus is the temple of God. He is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. He is the fulfillment of all the feasts of Israel. Everything that those feasts were designed to describe or portray is consummately fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus. And in the second coming, he is the true and final sacrifice, obviously. And in the second coming, um, he, when he returns, will consummate his purposes. Death will be eliminated. The resurrection will happen. Um, the curse will be lifted from the natural creation. It's all about the centrality of the person and work of Jesus. That's what I would pitch to them. That's what I would say, please pray about this, explore this, read the New Testament in, in light of this. Um, to me, that is the most important thing that I could share during the course of an elevator ride. Awesome. Sam, thank you so much for joining me today and having this conversation. I've, I've really enjoyed it, and I'm really, really stoked to share this with my listeners because I think it's a really good starting place for people who are interested in this subject and well, it's you been, know, it's been my, on both sides. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. I, and again, if I can just make a, an unashamed commercial announcement, if people really yeah. want to dig into this, my book, Kingdom Come, The Millennial Alternative, um, it's about a 600-page book, but <clears throat> they don't have to read all of it, but I think that they would find it very helpful in trying to understand what amillennialists do believe and what they don't believe. Absolutely. And I, by the way, I think I'm fair with my premillennial friends in yeah. the book, and I even have a long chapter on postmillennialism, and I look at the strengths of that view as well as its weaknesses. So I try to be objective and fair throughout. I'm total. I'm, I will um, link your book in the episode description so listeners can go check it out. Wonderful. You can follow Sam on Twitter at Samuel underscore Storms and find his writing at samstorms.org in addition to his books, which you can find on Amazon. Please call and leave a voicemail or text the flip phone at 323-999-1802 where you can flip out or try to flip my position or tell me about your own flip-flop. Maybe it has to do with exactly the subject. Maybe it doesn't. I want to hear about it. 323-999-1802. And you can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at 180cast. Please do not forget to subscribe on your way out. Favorite, repost, etc. And tell your friends about it because I know that if you are listening to this podcast, I know you're the kind of person that has friends who would also enjoy this podcast. You can follow me at Georgie underscore Borman on Twitter, where I opine on a variety of topics from a Christian conservative worldview. Um, fair warning, it is very pandemic heavy content these days. Until next time, seek the truth, share your values, and listen with your heart and your mind. God bless. Lord, let me see who I am, what I need, who I've got in the middle of a struggle. Lord, let me see who I am, what I need, who I've got. Executive producer Kevin McCullough. Music by Ruthie Kraft. Who I am, what I need, who I've got in the middle of a struggle. Lord, let me see who I am, what I need, who I've got to be.